We're in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, uh, as you know, most of you know. I do not remember um, where I left off, though. It seems to me I'm ready to begin verse 12, or is that... Yeah. All right, good. The, uh, that's real, real, real quick summary. Uh, Paul's writing <clears throat> his letter to the Corinthian church. Corinth was a Greek city, a thoroughly Greek city. Uh, it was a very pagan city, a city filled with at least four separate uh, temples to Aphrodite, Apollos, other uh, Greco-Roman gods, and it was a city of quite gross immorality. Temple prostitution was typical, and that to some extent has a little bit of, a, of an important background for the book. It is also um, a city in which Paul, in his second missionary journey, planted a church there. It has grown to what we think are several house churches. And uh, I think, and one of the reasons I chose to study it here in 2013 into 14 is, uh, I think it's one of the most relevant books in the New Testament because you and I increasingly, as followers of Christ, are finding ourselves in a similar situation where we no longer are setting the agenda for culture, we're no longer leaders of the culture, we're finding ourselves more and more counter-cultural, where the values and morals and ethical standards we hold to are not the values, morals, and ethical standards of our culture. And so it's, it's in a very real sense, helping us to understand the tension in the, in the words of Jesus in John 17, verses 13 through 18, you are to be in the world, but not of the world. And if you haven't ever thought much about that, there's an awful lot of tension with that. How do we do that? How do we live in the world? Because Christ did not take us out of the world when he uh, redeemed us. Instead, he left us here to be his salt and his light. So in chapter 7, the first uh, four chapters deal with the divisions of the church. Chapters 5 and 6 deal with three disorders in the church that were very, very upsetting and creating tremendous upheaval. Now chapter 7 through the end of the book, Paul is answering a series of questions that were asked him. The sheet that I gave uh, you all several weeks ago, what I've tried to do there, it's like playing Jeopardy. You were given the answer, but you don't know what the question was. You might remember that's how you play. You're supposed to give it in a question. But um, to, in all seriousness, we do have what Paul answered, but we have to then infer what the questions were. We have to discern those. And I think they're not difficult, to be honest with you. But for the most part, that's uh, what that sheet is. So we're looking, if you're following, we're on that fourth bullet or the fourth question. And it... It had, to, it had to revolve around, what if I'm living in a marriage where my spouse is not a believer? What if my marriage is a marriage where I have come to know Christ, but my spouse hasn't? What do I do? So that's kind of bringing you up to speed. Is everybody sort of with me? Sort of remember all that? So we look at verse... 12 and it begins but to the rest so I'm reading the New American Standard it means those who are not covered in verses 10 and 11 which means I'm sorry I said bullet 4 I meant bullet 3 there's Dave do you know Wes Dave (laughs) okay 
because he was wondering why you were late. <laughs> and I said, I don't know, except that Dave is often late because of his work. So Wes is here, and he was very happy that you invited him. He may not be happy that you invited him at the end of the session today, but that's what he said. In uh, bullet number three, I said four, I meant three. To the rest, verses 10 and 11 deal with believers who are married, both husband and wife. But to the rest, those who are married to an unbeliever, I say not the Lord. Do not stumble over that phrase. That doesn't mean what he is about to say isn't very important. All he is saying is Jesus did not address this question. Verse 10 and 11, Jesus did address that question. In in Mark 10, in Matthew 19, in Luke 16. But the issue of a marriage where a spouse is a believer and the other spouse is not, Jesus did not talk to that. That's all Paul is saying. It's not diminishing what he's saying. It's not saying, well, my opinion is as important as the Lord. That's not what he's saying. He's merely stating Christ didn't deal with us. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. That phrase, send her away, you should go back up to verse 11. That is legal language for divorce. That was the language that was used in the first century for divorce. So putting it very simply, you're married to an unbeliever and they want to continue to live with you, don't divorce them. Verse 13 a woman who has an unbelieving husband, he consents it with her, let her not send her husband away. So again, as we have seen in this chapter, marriage is mutual, it's reciprocal, and it's equal. It applies, everything Paul teaches in this chapter applies to both the husband and the wife. Paul is not preaching patriarchy here. He is not preaching the superiority of the husband here. He is not preaching that a woman is an unequal um, subordinate person. That is not what the Bible teaches. So it's, that's extreme. I hope you're getting why that's so important because a, a uh, and I hate to use the word feminist because that creates a category in your mind that I don't particularly want to create. But those who think the Bible is teaching patriarchy have not studied chapter 7. Paul is teaching an equality in the marriage relationship. And here you see it again. They're equal rights equal responsibilities, equal duties. You see it again. So why does he teach this? My wife says, you're absolutely out of your mind when you say you're getting more. (laughs) I say, well, honey, you've known that for 44 years. And you say, well, I'm out of my mind. So verse, (laughs) verse 14 begins to explain why. Because, you see, the tendency in the Greco-Roman world was, as to some extent the tendency in our culture is, marriage is convenience. And if it's now inconvenient, you just divorce. I don't mean to sound glib on that. I really don't. But it's, and Paul is challenging that. No, 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 no. Don't think that way. Marriage is covenant. Marriage is, is binding. It's an important, the most important institution God created Next to the church, it's the first institution God created. So he gives a reason. Why hang in there? Verse 14. 
For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. Here again, you see that equality, that mutuality, that reciprocity. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Now we have to stop there because there are a couple of key words. Paul is saying something here that is, I think, quite profound about marriage, even if it's a mixed marriage, mixed in the sense of unbeliever-believer, an unequally yoked marriage, as we sometimes speak of it. The unbelieving husband or unbelieving wife is sanctified. What does that mean? Automatically a believer? Automatically holy? You get a twofer there, one trusts Christ, they both come in? There's certainly blessed the fact that they're around there married to a believer, maybe more so than a family that's not. Okay. Talk to me a little more about that, Dave. Well, that's, you're you're in the right ballpark. Well, you're, because of the exposure that they have. So say say your wife is not a believer, she's gonna be in a house led by a male Christ bond uh, male, so she's gonna be sanctified because of that. She's gonna be maybe more blessed than I don't know if that's the correct word not in my mind, but it helps me think through it, you know, than somebody that, that that's not the case. That's good. Yeah, I, I like how you put that. Um, it isn't necessarily materially blessed, or it could. What would be the nature of the blessing? Um, I, I'm forgetting exactly what verse it talks about. If you have an unbelieving spouse um, living out your Christian faith, and, and that sanctification will win them to it's in First Peter. To Christ, mm-hmm. First Peter. So, mm-hmm. um, sanctification is that they're. They're around you, they're seeing you, they're struggling with how you're living compared to mm. maybe how they're living or believing. Mm. And and if if we're living rightly following God's instruction, um, through his grace we, we can win them. Yep, yep. It has uh, it has the it has the effect of providing opportunity after opportunity, day after day after day, for that person to see Jesus Christ live through you. That's a powerful Proclamation, evangelistic, if you want to put it, and uh, Andrew's correct in, in quoting from First Peter three there. Other ways in which they would be blessed. Well, I, I think that you know it talks about in the Bible quite a bit when somebody is blessed by their parents is was a big deal. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that we think of it that way. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're giving your son or daughter a blessing, so I think when you just want to take it within that context. Sure that she is being especially um, cared for. That's not the right word. I don't know if I can think of the right word, what I mean by that. Well, cared for would fit. I kind of like that. Um, Prayed for, also. Prayed? Is that what you said? Prayed for? Yes, good. Yes, yes, prayed for. Um, Let's let's think about uh, one or two other words that are used in the New Testament I'm thinking of what something Jesus said in the uh, fifth chapter of Matthew where we have the fullest account of that the Beatitudes remember that blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are the meek remember all that and then at the end of that he says you are the salt of the earth you are the light of the world so you're a believer married to an unbeliever what does salt and light look like in that situation well, I think we've talked briefly about this before. Salt 
when Jesus said that in the first century, they they would not have understood, oh, that's what I shake on a Nomahal steak. That's big and thick and juicy. That's not what they were thinking. It was used to some extent to enhance taste, but largely in the ancient world, salt was a preservative. It was extremely valuable. When Rome uh, conquered Judea in AD 30, uh, or excuse me, 31 BC under Pompey, one of the most valuable things they saw was the Sea of Salt, what you call the Dead Sea. Because Rome needed that. That was an incredibly important commodity throughout the empire. People paid vast amounts of money for that because it was a preservative. So let's apply that metaphor to a marriage. You're a believer. You're salt. By your very presence, you prevent, to some degree, further deterioration, further decline. Because that's the role the believer has. If... um, I happen to know a lot of the people that work at Homestead, but Jim works here at Homestead. Let's suppose that Paul and Lori did not know Christ and there was not a significant spiritual impact as there is at this company, but there wasn't. And Jim's the only believer in Homestead. Would he be salt? He would. He would have a degree of preserving things from further deteriorating simply because a believer represents the values morals and ethical standards of God. And those things are absolute. And the more believers you have, the greater, more stable, and greater perhaps impact those believers can have. Why would that not apply apply to a family? It would apply to a family. And so that's what Paul is saying. Don't hasten out of the relationship just because your spouse is an unbeliever. Because the impact you have is so significant. And Andrew correctly said, Peter draws another point, you may be used by God to lead your spouse to Christ. So it's kind of a, it's a very evident that Paul's giving some counter-cultural counsel here. Because if you apply it to 2013 American culture, marriage doesn't work, fine, get out of it. Doesn't matter. Paul is saying, no, don't look at it that way. Now, and, and Terry kind of illustrated that even if you come to faith in Christ and your spouse is not, it's going to be, it can be some difficult times ahead. And he's going to address that in verse 15. But he's he's just saying something. Keep the eternal perspective, first in terms of how God looks at marriage, and two, how God may use you. Because your very presence. And the second metaphor Christ uses is light. And remember, light by its very presence exposes darkness. And so again, in that sense, you can see if that applies in culture, why would that not apply in family? Then he adds children. In the second half of verse 14, otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Now, the word holy in Greek and the word sanctified in Greek are very similar. They come from the same word. So if you would be reading this in Greek, you would see they're very connected. But it's a little bit of a different word, and he's using it in the more direct sense of what holy means is set apart. They are set apart from kids who are in a family that is not have the presence of a believer. Set apart in what sense? In the same way. They will be exposed to 
values, morals, and ethical standards that they would not be exposed to if they were un- if it was an unbelieving family. So he's saying again, hang in there the effect you will have on your spouse and the effect that you will have on your children is potentially eternally significant. Don't give up. Do you agree? That an effect is what he's saying. Look at this from an eternal perspective. And I don't think any of us sitting around this table has any difficulty trying to understand so many kids today in our culture that are being raised in terribly dysfunctional families or families where the father lives on the West Coast and the mother lives in Omaha or vice versa. I, you know, you've heard me talk about my daughter Joanna who's a fifth grade teacher and I, when I got back from my trip I was talking to her again. She just has a terrific class of kids but two-thirds of her kids come from dysfunctional families. And it's just it's sad to see that. So Paul is saying don't leave. Because the impact you will have on your children is eternally significant. And he's, he's pleading with them. See it from a different perspective than the Greco-Roman culture of your neighbors across the street or on the other side of Corinth see something like this. That is going forward from the believer to other people, regardless of whether that believer sees it or not. Is that I mean, this is a promise that this is impacting the lives of the people in your marriage and your children. Absolutely, and you will by your very presence. You will have an impact. Yeah. Now, it, it. I mean, the same point. Got to remember, the spouse and the children still have to make an individual decision to yeah. trust Christ. Mm-hmm. There's nothing automatic about that. Is that old saying? God has no grandchildren. But it's still, if I can put it this way, humanly speaking. The chances are much greater that they will make a commitment to faith because they see it being lived. They see something different. They they witness something different. And you know, God. I think maybe a better way to even say it is God will you God will have an opportunity to do something supernatural because you're there. Than if you were not there. So stay in. It's hard. It's very hard. And I, all of you, I mean, I've been in higher education all my life, but I still I've been in lots of church situations and lots of families as well as some of the students and their families where the test of this is enormous because it is hard. You live with a, a, a spouse that's thoroughly rebellious, totally antagonistic, and deeply hostile to everything you believe. That's not going to be an easy relationship. It isn't. And all God is saying to you, I'm asking you to hang in there and I'll sustain you. And you never know how you will be used. I don't think, I think it's clear what he's teaching, but is there any other comment? I mean, it's, it's just a hard thing to say, though. And in our culture today, it's, verse 40, it's just the exact opposite. Every message that's sent to uh, everyone in our culture is, if it doesn't work, fine, leave, get out of it. Doesn't matter. You know, try it. It's like you know, trying a new car. Try it. If you don't like it, get another one. That's the way the culture looks at it. All right. I have a question. Um, divorce seems to be just as pervasive in the church as it is. You mean today? Uh, today, 
as it is outside the church. Um, and I, I don't know if if people who are Christians or, or purport to be Christians are relying on the grace of God to for permissiveness to do so, but I mean, if, if we see that happening in the relationship of a friend or somebody in our church or somebody who confesses to be a believer or professes to be a believer, what's a good approach um, to, for lack of a better term, knock some sense into them? Not, not what? What was <laughs> knock that? Knock some sense into them. Oh, knock some sense into them. <laughs> yeah. We'll take them to the woodshed with a <laughs> two-by-four, right? Oh, goodness. Um, Andrew, there, I, honestly, there is no, uh, there's no silver bullet in something like that. I mean, I, there really isn't. Uh, you know, you, you, if it's someone that you, I'll just use a scenario here. If it's someone you know fairly well and there's, to a degree, uh, you know, a certain amount of trust in the relationship, I think you have maybe obligation would be too strong a word, but you certainly have the opportunity to just lovingly take them to coffee or something like say, can, I, can we talk a little bit about this? This is really a serious thing I see going on. But to you know, go up to somebody you don't know in the church uh, and you know they're going through that, ah, that's probably not going to be received very well. But it's it's how you go about something like that. I think what, and this is a very broad statement, and I know in a sense your statement was a very broad statement, but it could be argued that divorce is a systemic failure of the local church. And I mean that very seriously, because if the divorce rate among Christians is almost as high as it is among the culture, something's wrong. I mean, something's breaking down somewhere. And so I, I think, um, and I'm certainly not the only one saying this, I, I think one of the things that we have to be a lot more intentional about it's both from the pulpit and in classes, like I'm thinking like adult classes and things like that, as well as other opportunities, really talk a lot about this and hold up good models, hold up examples and challenges, and lovingly confront. Maybe not necessarily one-on-one, -on -one, but challenge people. We've got to get back to what the church has rather consistently held to for 2,000 years, Marriage and the family is the institution God created first, and the language of Genesis 2 is the language of covenant. It is not a superficial, shallow, try it, you'll like it, if you don't like it, that is not the way the scriptures talk about marriage. The, the greater challenge is you have people who come to know Christ after they get married, and they've made lots of issues and mistakes, and you've got a lot you have to deal with, but we have to be just a lot, a lot more proactive, and that's that's hard to do it because a lot of people don't want to talk about that. Jim, uh, speaking on those numbers that we had mentioned, I heard something earlier. Maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I heard somebody that kind of dug into those numbers a little more deeply and said that if you take into account people who are consistently going to church mm -hmm. and people who are connected and serving in that church. Those numbers oh, are drastic. Oh, absolutely. What they do, and they absolutely. say that number, they're thrown at anybody who goes once to church, mm -hmm. once a year or twice a year. Christmas. Or even defining Christian broadly. Yeah. I mean, you're defining it very broadly. But in one sense, though, even if you define it broadly, it's saying something to us, that that institution of the church is really not that important in people's lives. Oh, yeah, right. Because yeah. The greatest, one of the greatest challenges we face in North America particularly 
is, um, I don't know how else to say this, the uh, superficial and shallow uh, nature of uh, people's faith. I'm not, I'm not sitting in judgment on because I don't know anything about their relationship with the Lord. But biblical Christianity is not looking at your walk with God as something you do on Sunday morning for an hour and everything else you're on your own. That's just totally antithetical. It covers absolutely everything, including how you look at marriage, how you look at family, how you look at work, how you look at all those things. It's a 24-7 walk. And I think we have to kind of get back to that, uh, and I'm not saying that that's the case in, in your churches necessarily, but we need to really get back to, I believe, preaching and teaching thoroughgoing discipleship. That the walking with the Lord is a 24-7 thing. It's not shallow. It's not superficial. It's not compartmentalized. It's He's your Lord. He's the Lord of the universe, and he's Lord of your life. And as Max Licato said, he's absolutely crazy about you. He created you, he loves you, and he wants to be involved in everything in your life. And you suffer loss when you don't involve him in everything in your life. He's nuts about you. That's why he sent Jesus. He wants you to be nuts about him. I'm using very colloquial language, which you know what I mean. That's, I mean, that's exactly right. My wife's doing a, a women's retreat uh, in two weeks, and her focus is on prayer. And she is taking that phrase, Abba, Father. Jesus uses it in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it, it is a term we are invited to use when we talk to God. And it's Papa. It's Aramaic for Papa. That's a pretty profound thought. Okay, verse 14. Excuse me, verse 15. Yet, what kind of a word is yet? It's, it's a word of contrast. It's, a, it's, it's a, like but. It's contrasting. Yet, or but, or however, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. And the word, again, as you've seen, Paul is using the legal language of the first century. We, we, would, we would say leave is, oh, it's a separation. No, this is a divorce. They're seeking a divorce. Let him do that, because the brother or the sister, remember, that's the language of the believer, is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Now, the, there is a lot of discussion about the term bondage in verse 15. How should we understand that? My opinion is, uh, and I've spent a lot of years studying this, but there are people who disagree with me on this, but I'm going to give you my opinion. My understanding of the word bondage is bondage to the marriage covenant. If your unbelieving spouse wants to leave, they're going to initiate, carry through, and seek the divorce. As we would put it, don't fight it. Because you're called to peace. If they want to leave, let them leave. Because the contrast is, if they want to stay, verse 12 and verse 13, stay, don't leave the marriage. But if your unbelieving spouse takes the initiative, don't fight it. You will accomplish nothing by fighting it. You are called to shalom. That's the Hebrew, peace, irene in Greek. 
God has called you to be peacemakers. Remember what Jesus says in, in Matthew 5. <clears throat> For how do you know, a wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, a husband, whether you will save your wife? And even in not resisting or fighting, you never know the impact because if your spouse is so antagonistic to your faith and you fight, what would be the effect of that? And that's, that's all I think he's saying. But it's hard. Some do not see it that way, but um, it's, it's hard for me to see it any other way than the way Paul is teaching this. So, and isn't there a, a Jim? definition of, I mean, use the word fight. I'm sorry? You use the word fight. Oh, fight, no. Um, I mean, don't fight it. But, I mean, isn't there some, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I would use the word, I mean, I think you want to contest for your marriage, don't you? You want to pray for your spouse. Mm-hmm. You want to, I mean, Absolutely. I, you want to try to preserve the marriage to the extent that it's possible for Absolutely. you to do it. Absolutely. But, I mean, is the context you're talking about, you don't want to resist to the point where it becomes, I don't know, angry and hurtful and... Bitter and bitter and all, all of that. that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I've known people who have gone through this, and the, and the spouse desperately wants to maintain and preserve the relationship and has prayed about it and asked others mm-hmm. to pray. Oh, sure, absolutely. And that should occur, Absolutely. So, I mean, it's, it, it almost seems cavalier. If they want to leave, let them leave. Well, I think there's, I don't know. I mean, underlying that is a, you know, is a sense of it's not the desirable outcome. Work to preserve it if you can. Oh, of course. And I, I, I didn't mean to treat this, if it was coming across that way, in a flippant manner. That's right. not what I meant. Uh, because obviously, I think in in most cases, um, you you have done ev- you as the believing spouse, you have done everything you can to preserve it. You will do anything to preserve it. That's the sense of verse twelve and verse thirteen. And if your spouse is uh, your unbelieving spouse is making the decision to leave, or uh, they they're talking about divorce, yeah, get get dozens, hundreds, if you can, people praying. Absolutely. And do everything you possibly can. But, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I didn't mean to treat that flippantly. But I think the bottom line of what he's saying is if everything you've done, um, praying, if they're open, I mean, so, you know, I've been in situations with, with couples where the uh, unbelieving spouse is absolutely unwilling to even go to get counseling. They won't even, so, okay, what do you do? It's, but it, you do all of those things, and the unbelieving spouse still, no, I, I, I'm going to get a divorce. I, 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 it's just, from my perspective, we cannot reconcile this. I'm leaving. And I, I think Paul's counsel there is okay. Don't fight it legally. I mean, don't, don't right, resist it, um, because shalom is always your goal. And you never know, even with that, how your unbelieving spouse might respond. But, oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry if, if I in any way didn't imply that we shouldn't be doing those things. But uh, that's right. And those kinds of things are so, uh, I'm sure, and I, I don't know you guys real well in terms of your own personal life. And uh, I have never experienced it because I've been married to Peggy for 44 and a half years. But those who have gone through a divorce have said it's the second worst experience in life next to death. 
It is just, it's incredibly emotionally wrenching. I would say it's worse than death because when your family member dies, it's, it's once. Yeah. Okay. And Time passes. You. But when you're when you're dealing with divorce, you're dealing with it every two weeks, sure. every two weeks, yeah. year after year yeah. after year. Yeah. And now, I mean, you're right. It's just it's and it's such a part of it's such a part of our culture today, and and you really really see it in the children. The children, where you know they, they split up their time and they spend here and then here, and they're caught in and it's just and sometimes mom and dad fight. And the children, children are pawns. I mean, it's just—it's a horrible thing, and the impact it has can never ever be positive. But anyway, and there. Does the uh, does the aspect of physical abuse yeah. have any impact on this? And if so, how would it be to the point of separation? Yeah, yeah. I've been in uh, counseling sessions because, uh, as you know, I am not a therapist, but in pastoral counseling and um, something like that, I get beyond my own personal feelings of capability. But this is my own opinion, and you may not agree with me on this, but um, if I use, because typically a wife, if a wife is in an abusive situation, I have counseled her leave, mm-hmm. not divorce, but separate. Uh, you must call that spouse to uh, out of tough love to a position of accountability. You cannot physically, or in some cases emotionally, abuse your partner. And I think it's, you know, I had one friend who said, no, never counsel that. And I just, before the Lord, I can't tell a woman to go back into that house when her husband's beating her up. I just, I can't do that. Maybe I should, but I could never do that. And I think it's the kind of, you know, is, uh, isn't it, isn't the phrase tough love? I mean, that applies here. Yeah. And then, of course, you have, with the ordinances and laws of our communities today, I mean, that's a criminal offense. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, typically authorities are brought in if it becomes known. And that has a whole other set of ramifications. But, Daryl, that is really hard for me to... Not divorce, but separation. I had a a very, Peggy actually was my wife's friend, uh, a friend, and then we worked with her. Um, She was in a very abusive situation, and uh, she had the bruises to prove it. And we just counseled, separate. We helped her get an apartment, and just awful. You know, where the husband or wife perseveres, you know, and praise for husband. There have been, I have seen some mm. very beautiful. Mm, absolutely. And absolutely. I mean, so I can see the wisdom that's here. Mm-hmm. Of, you know, a, an unbelieving spouse is won over by the love absolutely. and the faithfulness and the prayerful intervention yep. of, this, of the other spouse. It, it is a truly amazing, beautiful thing. I mean, maybe Terry, you can... Well, there you see the supernatural the work of God. I mean, you really do see that. Yeah. It is, yeah. I mean, I could talk for half an hour about the, the things the way you see God operate. It was just amazing. And I mean, like you said, and it was not having a discussion and convincing that person, but just over time hearing their comments made about mm-hmm. things that we believed back then and seeing that evolve. And it was just, it was nothing but God. I mean, it was just mind blowing. Mm-hmm. It was just mind blowing. I mean, it was just amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, well, just. I think, because um, we, we see it in our churches, you know, that we're going to, 
And I think that we also need to be available to, as a comforting source, man to man, woman to woman, and letting that person know that we love them. As, I mean, they will see it as a church speaking to them. Absolutely. And uh, so we're not just bystanders in these situations. You know, like we've suggested, mm -hmm. you know, we see this happening maybe before the fact, and that's good. And some tremendous, Lee Strobel, you know, the case for Christ, goes around talking about this, and he was just livid when his wife came to Christ. He hit the wall and smashed the wall. He was so angered by that. But <laughs> they're very, very well married today. And there are people <coughs> all over the country talking about that. Uh, as, we're not just bystanders here. We're a part of the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. and, and we need to be of comfort and encouragement, I think. This is, I guess I'm making a statement. Maybe I shouldn't. And then pray for those people. Yeah. Really, pray. there's power in prayer. Absolutely. <laughs> so. And I think the local church also, and, and I know, I'm sure your church does that, ours does, uh, when there is a divorce or whatever, and you have then a single mom with two kids, the local body has to be a part of that. We have to help. We have to come alongside. If we don't, um, that that is that that is a I think a very 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 serious issue for the local church. That's that's kind of a, a duty or responsibility we have. And then a lot of guys can kind of be a substitute surrogate dad. Particularly for some of the kids, it's. Do you find the local church doesn't do that very well? Huh? Do you find the church doesn't do that? Very oh, well? I think it varies, Dave. I mean, some are some have very focused ministries to help, and others um, you can kind of go the whole spectrum. Others just ignore it, don't even regard it. I think it's a. I think don't you agree? I think that's an important obligation we have. It's funny you talk about it. my cousin. Oh, it is. Mm -hmm. it, I think it is a, even more so in a in a smaller church, where maybe you don't have, or a very large church where you're just sort of a very impersonal number. But the advantage that can be in a large church is you could one have the resources, and two you can have this non uh, staff or volunteer people to help that are just ministering to that group. Because the moment you get uh, two or three or four single moms together, that that's incredibly nurturing, and encouraging, and that's that's so valuable to do that. So in the very small churches, then perhaps what couples have to do, uh, which is something we've tried to do in our church, then a couple adopts that mom. I don't mean you want know to mean by adopt. You yeah. just that, they're going to be a mission. We're going to bring them over to the house maybe after Sunday church, or maybe during the week. I mean, just all kinds of ways to just. Courage, help, uh, Christ Community. I think they probably still do that. Joel has a free uh, oil and uh, oil filter uh, checkup service for single moms and things like that, just to help them do very basic things. You're sending a message we care. All right, um, you ready to go to the next paragraph? Let's. Uh, we would need to reserve a little time to hear from you, don't we, Jim? It's not going to take me 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, whatever. Um, verse 
17 through verse 24, Paul goes on a bunny trail. The fifth bullet. How does conversion to Christianity affect my life situation? That is apparently the question that Paul's answer. It probably came out of the discussion, I should say the response to the question about an unconverted spouse living with a converted spouse that we just studied together. There Paul's saying, don't make any radical changes. If your husband or your spouse wants you to stay, stay. Don't, don't change, don't do anything. So it causes him to think kind of radically by going down a bunny trail. So I'm going to distribute two, uh, you know, I have all this stuff on PowerPoint, but I'm going to distribute two, a copy of two slides that I think can help flesh this out for us, at least I hope it will. So if you'll take these, uh, I'm going to introduce, don't lose these, if, if you lose it. Now, I'm not president anymore, but I used to say, you lose it, a $1,000 check to Grace University. But um, raise an awful lot of money that way. No, I um, but it's, it's helpful to, to see kind of a big picture and to kind of see the structure of this. And uh, hopefully this will help uh, accomplish that, and, and we'll obviously continue it next week. The implied question, as I said, and it's on that first slide, how does conversion to Christianity affect my life situation? From verse 20 and verse 22, uh, verse 20 and verse 24, we see kind of the governing principle. Remain as you are when you came to Christ. Do not make radical changes. That's the principle. Because so much has changed when you come to Christ. So many things have changed. Paul, in effect, is counseling, don't be impulsive. (laughs) Don't be impulsive about decisions. And to drive this home, he uses two examples, both both of which are very hard for you and me to identify with 2,000 years later. The first example is circumcision, and the second example is slavery, both of which do not apply to us in the North American church. I mean, they're not issues that we struggle with. Slavery is not a part of our culture. Circumcision is not an issue. So I want to I look at this with you, but I don't want you to lose sight of the principle. The principle is what we want to try to apply. And then we'll look at his examples. So he says, only at, in verse 16 now, only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And this I direct in all the churches. Was any man, man called, already sir, called is Paul's vocabulary word for salvation. Was any man called circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Anyone been called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. 
What matters is keeping the commandments of God. That each man remain in the condition in which he was called. Remember, called is Paul's vocabulary word for salvation. Verse 21. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you're able, become free. Rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord, while slave, is the Lord's freedman. He who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each man remain with God in the condition in which he was called. Now, if we were writing this today, um, what would be the issues that might come up? Because remember, Paul is... He's talked about you come to Christ and your spouse is not a believer. Don't change anything. Unless your unbelieving spouse forces a divorce, don't change anything. So that causes him to go down a bunny trail for a little bit. But yet it's not a bunny trail. It's very much connected. What might be ways for us to apply this in the 21st century? Our employment. Employment? Very much so. I was just going to say like maybe socioeconomic God's calling me to poverty. I'm going to sell everything, sell my house, and we're going to live in a sacrificed life until Jesus comes back. Maybe he wants you to do that, but don't make a decision like that impulsively. Dave? Dave, was your hand up? Well, it's something very similar. Um, you know, each one of you should remain in the situation where you was that when God called him. So, you know, can't pass her necessarily. Definitely says, you know, for us that were, you know, we're, you know, we're not in the ministry, which I think is most of everybody here. Yeah. yeah. Good. The tendency sometimes is a, per, a person comes to know Christ. Oh, Lord wants me to be a pastor. So that means you, everything changes. Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't make those kinds of decisions quickly. Years ago, we had a guy who uh, was in school, an incredibly gifted young man, very, very gifted, passionate. We had a speaker come in at a conference. He made a decision. God is calling me to go to Alaska. So he sold everything, dropped out of school, bought a plane ticket, showed up in uh, in Alaska and said, here I am, I'm ready to serve. What do you think they said to him? Oh, really? And what's your background? What's your training? What's your resume? Oh, I I just dropped out of school because God's calling me here. And the guy said, he may be calling you, but he hasn't talked to me about it. Go back to Nebraska. (laughs) Now, thats I don't mean to be cursed or flippant or or in any way glib here, but it's trying to counter what is just a part of human nature. My entire life has been radically changed now that I've come to Christ. And Paul's saying, that's right. But don't do anything impulsive. Don't make any quick radical decisions. Another way of saying this, and I've got to quit, another way of saying this is this is the biblical wisdom you see in the Old Testament, in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Be wise. Do not do things impulsively. Do not make radical changes. You, you know, uncircumcised, circumcised, it's, it's almost when you think it's kind of silly, but don't don't try to become uncircumcised. That's you're circumcised. 
which is you think medically that's a (laughs) but he's he's using that as a as an illustration it's so outrageous to think about it but it drives home the point god god is going to transform every aspect of your life let him do it don't be impulsive don't be radical you have been radically changing your position now as you're righteous and holy. Take time. He may be calling you to a change in your vocation. But don't make that decision now. Just like he said, if your unbelieving spouse wants to stay married, don't make any changes. Stay. So he then applies it to a much larger lifetime principle. If the Lord wants you to make a change, he will make that clear to you. For now, stay where you're at. And isn't that wise counsel? Mm-hmm. That is very wise counsel. You thought it? I can't believe we're done with this, but you got it? It's a very, very... I have used this in so many different situations with young adults in college situations. Because they're typically passionate, impulsive, and they're not very wise. <laughs> it's just the nature of being a 20 year old you know. and you know what I mean alright tomorrow yeah, tomorrow um, Wednesday next Wednesday we'll, we'll continue his discussion about marital situations and in my view the rest of the chapter deals with engaged couples what do you have to say to them we'll talk about that next week Lord we're thankful for our time uh, thank you for the clear instruction of Paul And uh, in regards to this whole matter of marriage and how we look at it and how we look at our vows and our commitment, and uh, that's such instructive counsel on if a believer is married to an unbeliever, what do we do? I pray that you'll help each one of us. Uh, Thank you for your grace in our lives. Uh, Help us to be people who are sensitive to others, particularly those who may be wrestling in their marriages. Um, We want to be people who see a marriage the way you see it. It's a covenant. It's the most important institution you created. It's the first one you created. It matters how we look at it. We also thank you that you're gracious and patient, forgiving, you're compassionate, and realize that when two people live together, lots of issues can come up. It shows, again, that a true God-honoring marriage is supernatural. It, It demands and it requires a dependence on you day in and day out. And then we see in Ephesians 5.32 marriage, evidenced and manifested. For all of us around this table who are married, may our marriages in fact be Ephesians 5.32 marriages, where people see in our marriage an example of how Christ relates to his church and how the church relates to Christ, which is the whole point Paul's making. That's a supernatural call. So give us a good rest of this day. Help us in all we do and say to represent you well. We pray this in the name of your son. Amen. Amen. See you next week.